Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to be speaking to Dr. Janet Lewis about her book titled How Insurgency Begins, Rebel Group Formation in Uganda and Beyond, um, out in 2020 from Cambridge University Press. Uh, This book does a whole bunch of things, and most importantly, it tackles the question of how and why do rebel groups initially form. And this may, to people who don't study civil wars, um, be sound like a question that, oh, well, we must already have an answer for. But actually, as those of us who do study civil wars know, we this is actually something we don't necessarily have a lot of clarity around. Um, we know a lot about kind of uh, the types of issues that can cause grievances or can cause issues between communities. We know a lot about sort of how rebel groups organize and operate, but sort of that turning point, how do you go from there being some sort of issue that maybe violence is going to be used to try and affect change about to an actual organized rebel group? Um, there's some work to be done. And thankfully, Janet has done a lot of that work and helped us figure that out um, to understand kind of this transition process, um, which is murky and tricky. And I'm really impressed by how clearly, Janet, you've been able to investigate this. Um, And I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us more about it. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. Could you start us off before we get into the book to tell us a bit about yourself and explain kind of how you came to this topic and this book? Sure, sure. Um, well, let's see. I've, I've had a long interest in uh, intergroup conflict, right? With conflict and violent conflict in general, but also why it's so often defined by identity boundaries. I, I think it goes back to, um, as an undergrad, I studied abroad and, and lived in South Africa. I studied at the University of Western Cape, and I, I lived with a family there um, in the flats outside of Cape Town. And um, this was in the years immediately following apartheid uh, in the late 90s. Um, and also during that time, um, during summers in college, I worked uh, at an organization that brought Israeli and Arab youth to the U.S. in a summer camp type setting. And so I was a counselor there. I ran a bunk of Israeli and Arab teenagers. um, And I taught them swimming and I I worked with them on a ropes course. And through these experiences of just becoming close with people for whom identity-based conflict had so intensely touched their lives, um, that was really formative for me. Um, You know, I should also note this was a time... uh, 
this was the late 90s, so there had been a lot of identity-based conflict all over the world um, that had led to you know, a lot of terrible violence. But I think there was also a time of relative hope that I was really attracted to. I'm someone, you know, very interested in preventing and or, or and preventing conflict or or ending violence um, before it gets really bad. And, and in that time, the Oslo Accords were not yet dead. Mandela was still president, and uh, so at that sort of important phase of my life, I think I was really drawn to both the you know terrible things that could come out of identity-based conflict, but also the um, possibilities that it could it could be overcome, the sort of promise of resolving it. And then later on in grad school, um, I knew I wanted to return to research in Africa, and I, I zeroed in on why some conflicts become violent, some don't. Um, I'm a political scientist, so I, I tend to take a comparative perspective in my work. Um, and I began by uh, going to Uganda to get a start on studying that question. Uh, this was sort of early in my PhD program. And while I was in Uganda, again, with the aim of studying why some wars between non-state actors, rebel groups, and states, why some become so severe and some don't. Um, but while I was there, I met with someone from Uganda's Amnesty Commission, and he gave me a list of people, because Uganda, I'll say more about this, I'm sure, as the conversation continues, um, Uganda is a place that's had had a lot of um, internal warfare in its recent past, um, but has been pretty um, peaceful, which says a lack of, of warfare since around about 2006. And while I was there talking to him, and I was focused in on the about five rebel groups, six rebel groups I knew of that had formed in Uganda. He gave me a list of people who had received amnesty from the government for being involved with rebel groups. And on that list, I saw more than a dozen groups I hadn't heard of. And I hadn't seen in our common data sets uh, about civil war in Uganda, these rebel groups, but they were there. They had clearly existed. There were people who had been members of those groups and had gotten amnesty from the government. Um, and I asked him, wait a minute, what are all these groups I've never heard of? Uh, he said, oh, well, they're, you know, they're not really important. They didn't become super violent. They got nipped in the bud early. Um, and from there, I, I saw the political science literature and the broader sort of scholarship on conflict onset, we often call it internal armed conflict onset or civil war onset. I saw it in this new light. I realized that there were lots more instances of rebel group formation than um, we usually realize when we study these things retrospectively, and that a lot end early. Um, and, and so that has a lot of fascinating repercussions for how we should even think about how conflicts um, begin, and I wanted to understand more about it. And uh, that's how I, I, I came to, to study this topic and, and decided to write the book. Thank you for um, that wonderful introduction. I think that sets up a lot of what the book does really well and kind of some of its broader themes in a sense. Um, but before we kind of dive too much into the findings, which obviously I definitely have questions about, um, I want to think a little bit about kind of methodology, because as I sort of hinted at earlier, and as you've mentioned there, um, we do have lots of data sets. We do have lots of knowledge about civil wars. Um, but 
actually figuring out, you know, the things that don't happen, the rebel groups that don't succeed, it's really hard to find out about that. Um, and so I was wondering if you, given that you have figured out a way to do this, can you tell us a bit about kind of both the challenges of this sort of research, but also what your methods ended up being? Sure, absolutely. Yes, that's right. Because there's this kind of the fact that I decided to read this question, uh, excuse me, to, to study this question and this realization that there were all these small rebel groups sort of the begs the question of like, wait a minute, why has no one studied this before? Why have we not focused on this before? And as you just noted, the answer is because it's, it's really hard, right? And that's because rebel groups often form in areas where uh, you know, very rural areas of low capacity states, sometimes known as weak states, by which I mean the state is not monitoring the territory very carefully. It's not very present in the sort of rural peripheral areas. Um, this is, you know, predominantly in, you know, today in the, in the global south, in poor lower income states. Um, and so they're missing from a lot of uh, these, these rebel groups, these small early failed rebel groups are often missing um, from newspaper accounts of rebellion. And they don't really therefore make it much into a lot of the histories they're not, and they're not really in the data sets, right? And so the, the biggest methodological challenge I faced was to go back and try to document some of these groups. And the, the short answer of how to do it was pretty straightforward, which is, you know, I, I started with this list of groups of, I, I came to understand them as potential groups that the government had identified. Um, and then I went back and retraced them in the localities um, where they had purportedly began. So <clears throat> a couple of important points here. First of all, the government's list of groups was a little bit too long, which is to say um, something somewhat un unusual about Uganda is that they have this blanket amnesty law for former rebels. So that meant that, um, it, uh, you know, that incentivized people to put down their arms and to gain this legal amnesty from the government from any rebellion they had engaged in. Um, Right, but it also meant that there, there could have been the potential for people to exaggerate rebellions where they hadn't really existed right? in, in order to get amnesty. And I should say as part of the amnesty package was a couple of hundred dollars um, as, you know, to help incentivize people to come forward and put down their arms. Right, so there's some risk that there's some rebel groups counted there that were not real. Um, and the Uganda government also felt that it was good publicity for them to, to be able to perhaps inflate the number of rebel groups that they had put down. So I, I wanted to not take that number at face value. So I went to each of the localities, as I said, where the rebel group had purported to start to talk to people there. And, you know, perhaps... Not surprisingly, but if you go to the communities where rebel groups had purportedly formed, people there, and I should say these events were happening 10, 15, maybe in some cases 20 years prior to when I was doing um, my research, um, people there remembered what had happened, right? Adults who are old enough could tell you if there was a real rebel group, um, who was involved with it what happened, right? And as well as local journalists who are old enough to remember. So I could go back and this was a really interesting process of getting to travel around Uganda and make connections with 
you know, local leaders, local journalists, often who were um, affiliated with a local radio station, and gain basic information about whether or not a rebel group had really existed and what were the basic events that occurred around any rebel groups that, that did form. And, you know, I think, so it, it's important to note that a lot of these rebel groups, you know, they did commit some violence. Like it kind of begs the question, were these, were these groups really important to understand? If they were small, they ended early, you know, who cares, right? They were often still very scary, unpleasant things for the people who, who lived around them. And importantly, some of those groups did go big, right? And if they were not nipped in the bud, as a government uh, officials there would often say, right, they would go on to become quite severe conflicts. Um, and so part of the reason to retrace both those that end early and those that get big is to be sure we're looking at the full landscape of how these kinds of um, conflicts get started. Um, and, and lastly, I'll just note that you know, what we typically do, at least in political science, is use data sets um, that only count rebellions if they um, resulted in some, you know, fairly substantial number of deaths, which is, which is really quite reasonable for a lot of questions about conflict, right? But if you really want to get at how they start and why many fail, you need to look at, you know, not only those that go on to kill 100 or so people, maybe even 20, 30 people, you need to look at those who end before they even, they even get to that point. Mm. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of methods in there that I think might be useful for other things, um, but is also useful to think about within this conflict context of civil war studies, because um, some of these are, as you said, sort of a bit unusual, right? We are used to kind of having a minimum threshold of death, um, and that's great a lot of the time. Uh, but this is a great example of how we kind of can't just do that without thinking about it. Um, so thank you, Sora, for giving us that basis to then get into your actual argument. Um, so I have a bunch of kind of questions to pick apart pieces of your argument and ask you to give us more detail about them. But maybe before we do that, could you just kind of state very briefly sort of what is the thing that you found? Um, sure, absolutely. I I'll focus on, um, you know, the, the, there's several different questions that the book addresses. I'll focus on what I think is is probably the most important, which is which is why among rebel groups that form, only some become viable. And and in doing that and answering that question, um, I can tell you some of the basics of of also how they form. And this is, I should say, the, the book focuses really exclusively on the kind of weak state context that I, I just described. Right, where the state has a low capacity to, to monitor um, it, its particularly rural peripheral areas. <clears throat> and in those contexts, I find that, that rebel groups often start small because they can, right? There's low barriers to entry, right? So these are not groups that start with some large group of people and some huge upswell of um, frustration and protest necessarily, right? Because they don't need to. Just a small number of people can get a, one of these rebel groups started, right? But this has all kinds of implications for what the start actually looks like in practice. I and mean, in particular, it means that these groups that are small when they start are quite vulnerable, right? 
even if the state has a generally low capacity to monitor its territory, if it does learn about a non-state organized group forming on its territory that plans to challenge its authority, right, they will go after it. And even if their military is not, you know, particularly large or high capacity, right, they would certainly have the capacity to end this kind of small nascent group. Right. So this puts information at the center of what happens to rebels. Um, and so, you know, in a nutshell, if, if the government finds out about the rebels, they, they will be able to end them. And therefore, what becomes very crucial to um, the answering the question of why only some groups become viable, the answer is, does the government find out? And it turns out that that puts civilians at the center of the story because civilians, that is the ones who are local to, close to where rebel groups form, right? Those are the ones that are going to learn some basic information about who the rebels are, where they go at night, where they do their training, right? And so whether or not this group of local civilians tells the government who that, that a rebellion is happening and where they are and who they are, that really determines whether or not um, Groups survive. That's that's the core of the argument, and then there's a lot of other interesting pieces about what that means for how rebels use violence and what that means for the about these um, ethnic makeup of the communities and what that might have to do with whether or not these rebels uh, get off the ground. So that's exactly what I want to sort of dig into. So thank you for giving me such a good opening to start to go into the pieces of that argument. Um, Let's talk about deploying violence. How does this kind of reliance on nearby civilians to, in the very least, not go straight to the government, um, how does that impact how these nascent groups think about the use of violence? Absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the big picture idea is that they use violence very carefully, right? Because what these civilians think about them really matters. And I argue... That you know I, that you know most civilians, and of, and of course there are exceptions, and we should talk about that. Um, and, and I think we will as the discussion continues. But but typically, um, civilians are we could think of them as somewhat neutral to a, a new rebel group and willing to follow them if they think they're going to be reasonably competent and or just. Um, you know, and this is tough to pinpoint, but the, the general idea is that even a person who happens to be very anti-government is not likely to support a rebel group if they think the rebels are going to be incompetent or terrible in some way, right? And by the same token, you know, someone who is, you know, sort of neutral or even supportive of the government might want to get behind a rebel group if they think they are going to be quite competent or do really great things for their community, Right. And so there's sort of it's not really predetermined what civilians will think of them. And civilians are trying to understand what's going on if they start seeing violence occur in their midst. And rebels know that. And so rebels are committing violence with the aim typically of scoring easy wins. Right. So it's, we could expect violence to be very small scale. Um, you know, I should say also rebels, they do need, uh, they're often resource poor early on. So they need, for example, to capture some weapons. So they may, if there's a police detached, you know, a few policemen walking around in the night on patrol, that would be a good target for a new rebel group. 
right? Because it would be easy to overpower those just, you know, two or three police officers gain their weapons and equipment, right? But also then spread the word to the community, you know, hey, there's something starting here and we are really quite competent. Here's evidence of that, right? And it's imp- and, and the rebels have very much in mind, you could think of it as the optics of their early violence, right? The rebels also have not yet perhaps set up good intelligence structures in a community right off the bat. Um, and so they're also still trying to figure out which civilians might be for or against them. And so you don't see the kinds of terrible violence against civilians that you often see later on uh, in the insurgency. Typically, you see more sort of pacific behavior towards the civilians as rebels are trying to win them over and very careful small-scale violence um, meted out against the government that, that generally demonstrates, again, their, their competence. Mm. And I think I thought this is a particularly key finding um, because it sort of pushes back against one of the assumptions that I think we often see in news reports of kind of, oh, well, the violence is small because they're just not very good at it. Or the violence is small because they don't have the capacity to it. And that if they had more people or had more weapons, whatever, or, you know, had more skill, they would indiscriminately kill a lot of people. Um, And maybe that's true in some instances. But I think what I really appreciated from um, this sort of investigation is that uh, you give us sort of more options and more tools to understand what might be going on and in a lot of ways kind of give the nascent rebel group more agency and rationality mm-hmm. <laughs> than sort of hysteric news reports might. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it's, it's also actually part of the reason it's interesting, you know, that the rebels aren't often, or, or we, we see pretty commonly them not, you know, sort of announcing, as you say, while they are whispering to the local civilians, they're not announcing often to the national news, hey, this was us, right? They're, they're trying to slowly spread the word locally, but they might not want the national government to be certain that there's a new rebellion forming. They might want to, and these are communities often that, you know, suffer from banditry um, or, you know, other forms of criminality. And we see actually, you know, throughout history, a lot of cases of, you know, governments actually can't tell whether or not they are bandits at first, right? Or they're not sure, and the, and, and the, the rebellion may not be broadcasting it in these early stages. But that actually exacerbates this problem of us having a hard time, in retrospect, studying um, these groups is, is yet another problem. While we also may miss these early phases often, we may see subsequent phases and we see rebels, uh, you know, committing atrocities against civilians and assume that that's sort of how it was from the start, right? But because these actually very initial stages were, were quite hidden um, and intentionally on the, um, from the standpoint of the rebels from people beyond the local community. It's also another reason why it's so important for the local communities um, to be like sort of consulted or for them to, to um, their stories about what happened in the beginning of the rebellion, that it's important that those are reflected in our, collective retrospective understanding of what happened because they may be some of the only people who really knew what happened in the very early phases. Yeah. Another reason that this is such an important investigation that you've done. Um, So I'd love to ask you now about another thing that you've briefly mentioned and definitely something that I found very interesting reading it. Um, Can you tell us about kind of 
the composition of the people, the demographics, I suppose, of where these groups launch, because we do have a lot of research, much of which is conflicting around kind of the level of identity-based homogenization and to what extent that makes a difference, right? Does coming from one ethnic group versus a mix or whatever, does that have anything to do with violence? Um, So can you tell us about kind of what you found when you looked at ethnic homogeneity? Sure, absolutely. And, And I agree. I mean, there's a kind of conventional wisdom that I think is right, which is that a lot from probably most civil wars happen along identity based lines. And there's just all this debate about why, what that's about. And there's a lot of you know, different possibilities and different mechanisms there. Um, and what I found, at least in the cases that I studied, is that, you know, it's very important. The, the ethnic composition of the communities where rebels form is, is very important. Although, and, and rebels know this, but rebels are constrained initially about where they can form, right? They know when they're thinking about forming a rebel group that they need to know the local terrain um, very well, both the physical terrain, but also the social terrain, right? They understand that the people who live around the area where they're going to form play such an important role in their destiny. Um, and therefore they want to go, you know, very often where some of the initial leaders are, are from, right? Their home region. And, you know, it turns out that at least in Uganda, and I think this is true for a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, it's not only the urban areas that are ethnically mixed. There are some rural areas that are ethnically mixed. And it just so happens that some, uh, you know, aspiring rebel leaders are from those areas. Some are from more homogenous areas. And this is to say that rebel groups tend to, or I say all this to make the point that rebel groups form in both ethnically homogenous areas and ethnically heterogeneous areas. You know, some some areas might have three or more very different ethnic groups living in with uh, just, you know, tens of kilometers around each other, whereas other regions might be homogenous with just, you know, one one group, one language over, you know, several, even a couple hundred kilometers. Okay, so really different levels of ethnic homogeneity or heterogeneity where groups form. Um, what I found is that you know, consistent with what a lot of people and certainly existing literature would expect, the groups, the rebel groups have formed in ethnically homogenous areas were much more likely to form, excuse me, to become viable, right? To survive long enough to really go on and, and challenge the government to sort of at least minimally control territory. Um, and <clears throat> so, so again, that's not surprising, right? That those, that that form in homogenous areas are more likely to become viable. Um, but I, I found that it's not for the, the reason that I think most people would assume, right? Which is that, well, from the start, those areas were more, the civilians there were more pre-mobilized or predisposed to hate the government. And therefore rebels started, everyone already didn't like the government and rebellion got off the ground. Um, instead, um, what I found and what really came out of the fieldwork in Uganda was that in ethically homogenous areas, rebels that were able to really get control of rumor networks um, were better able to spread what they wanted civilians to believe about them right, in the homogenous areas. That just generally speaking, um, news travels fast, rumors travels fast in homogenous areas. 
and the kind of news and I travel class, you could also think of it as sort of vetting or credibility of information, right? So a person might hear that a group of police officers were killed the prior night. They might hear, hear about that on the radio, right? That's sort of information coming in. But how they interpret that, what they understand that is the fact that they then interpret that as, wow, these rebels are pretty competent. They're really going to become something great. This is, this is part of a rebellion that I should get behind. That's something they're more likely to hear in an ethically homogenous area. In con- contrast, in an ethically heterogeneous area, the local networks are more fragmented. And as a result, rebels are still trying to get out this sort of good news about them and about how competent they're going to be, all the great things they're going to do for a community. But their sort of desired news is much more likely to get stuck. People are much less likely to hear what they, what the rebels would want them to hear about the nascent rebellion. Okay, and that is why it's not the case that what I, it, I found in Uganda that not all groups that got off the ground, that, that excuse me, tried to form in homogenous areas, um, got off the ground and became viable. Um, but really it was only where rebels formed in a homogenous area that they were able to successfully um, become viable. And, um, you know, I could, I could talk a lot ab- about, you know, why that is, why the network structures are so different in homogenous areas and heterogeneous areas. I'll just say briefly that, you know, I, I looked at a lot of history and anthropology about the areas that I was studying um, within Uganda, and it became clear to me that how people come and settle in various areas really affects their ethnic demography. And, you know, in short, people are connected to each other through webs of intermarriage over pretty big distances, uh, intermarriage as well as just family, extended family, clan, over pretty broad areas. So they're more likely, I think, to believe and trust news about sensitive topics like rebellion over pretty broad area and ethically homogenous areas, right? Whereas in ethically heterogeneous areas, they were settled in, in different ways, Um, that lead to, from the standpoint of the broader region, a more fragmented structure where um, people don't share such trusted news over or receive and believe such trusted news over such um, broader uh, distances in ethnically heterogeneous areas. So there's really important repercussions um, for the rebel groups. And again, this is a a mechanism that's different from just everyone was already frustrated with the government and therefore the rebellion gets off the ground, right? In fact, when I went back to interview people, I heard a mix about people's preferences about the government prior to the rebellion. And uh, I just heard repeatedly in the more homogenous areas I was studying about how quickly and how rapidly everyone in the community knew about the rebels. Uh, I heard from the rebels about how much easier it was to spread the desired information about the rebellion. Um, whereas in the heterogeneous area areas, rebels expressed frustration about how they just couldn't get the word out. And civilians noted that they just hadn't really heard about the rebels. So they had kind of assumed they were a joke and therefore instead of keeping their mouths shut about the rebellion as the rebels had wanted, they, um, you know, shared what they, anything that they knew about the rebels' identities and location um, with the government from an early phase, which, which really doomed the rebellion there. I'm really glad that you explained um, that particular finding because uh, it does have some really, really important implications given our sort of current theory. Um, 
one that I admit I've never been particularly satisfied with. So I was pleased to see this. Um, and I'd love to kind of ask a, in a similar vein, sort of how do your findings kind of hold up against some other sort of known theories, right? You've mentioned a bit about kind of, oh, well, they're already mobilized against the government, therefore, right? Um, but what about things kind of like terrain or um, proximity to borders or exclusion from politics or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Let me, I'll actually take exclusion first and then come back to um, terrain and borders just because uh, since exclusion kind of relates to the um, maybe more commonly expected ethnic grievances type um, mechanisms. So as one thing I think it's important to note is that sort of I, I so it, of course, um, if a region was excluded from central government and that was common knowledge and that was politicized, that clearly would only help a rebellion. And surely there's some cases where that happens, right? But I think, but the point I'm trying to make is that in at least a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, well, actually, let me back up and say first in Uganda, you know, I I did my best at getting objective measures of exclusion and found that, you know, that particular argument just doesn't hold up, at least for that case, right? It's it's a a case for which there's pretty good data on the ethnic background of people who are part of the cabinet in the years um, prior to or right around where the rebellions formed. And so it's it's pretty clear that there's no relationship between exclusion of of ethno regions and where ethno regions either formed or became viable. Um, <clears throat> again, I don't I don't think it, it certainly wouldn't have hurt the the rebels' case, but the the point um, is that the you know my argument suggests that a lot of what happens with the community frustration towards central governments they come out of the violence of rebellion rather than preceding it, or at the very least they can, and that in ethically homogenous contexts, right, those frustrations are more likely to be understood in ethnic terms. And therefore we might look back on some of some cases um, and kind of presume that ethnic grievances started the conflict, where in fact ethnic grievances came out of the conflict, right, especially as the, if the governments come in, as they often do, with kind of ham-fisted counterinsurgency strategies strategies and the government themselves gets uh, involved in harming civilians, right? Of course, then ethnic grievances really get exacerbated um, by the course of a conflict. Um, so I, I think that, um, and, and hope that my findings just sort of put into context that you don't need to have widespread identity-based grievances to have conflicts that are retrospectively remembered as being really about ethnicity, right? And of course, um, some of the, the findings about kind of rumor in ethnic groups suggest sort of how narratives perhaps get spread and, and really crystallize better in, in homogenous contexts. Turning to some of the arguments about the sort of more classic arguments about, I'll take, um, say, terrain first. I, I think that... Um, in general, my approach of kind of turning the clock back on rebellions and looking at the very initial stages, I don't necessarily contradict those findings, um, say about terrain, um, but they suggest that, and, and, and just to clarify for any listeners who might not be familiar with it, right, there's a sort of classic finding from Firan and Leighton of a 2003 paper that countries with more rugged terrain are more 
likely to have more insurgency. And, you know, I found that rebel groups formed pretty much anywhere that was much more likely in rural areas, but it was not the case that they formed, you know, exclusively in the mountains. Um, and so my findings kind of put some of those cross-national findings from Fern and Leighton and others into context, um, which is that may that finding may hold at a cross-national, at a country level. But when you look within a country, rebels are really constrained by these information dynamics and what they you know, usually want most is to just, you know, feel that they um, will be able to survive an incubation period wherever they are. And for some rebels, that might be in the mountains. For others, it might be in their in their home community. For some, I found that, you know, if they if their home community were, was on, you know, near a border, they would set up shop certainly within closer to the border or within the more forested area within the general region that they knew they knew best. Um, so in, in a sense, by sort of both turning back the clock and um, studying it at a higher level of resolution, which is to say at the subnational level rather than the national level, I mean, we see that terrain, you know, certainly helps rebel groups, um, and, and some certainly flee to the mountains if they get pushed there. Um, you know, borders, they would take advantage of them if they had access to them. But it wasn't their primary concern when they were getting uh, off, off the ground. Uh, I think that a lot of those findings, this is true for a lot of findings in, in literature, they, they also hold for once the Civil War really gets going, right, which is what a lot of the, the prior literature is actually focused on. So once civil war really starts getting going, borders are you know even more crucial for rebel groups because they have larger armies and they need to have a good fallback area. So, you know, similar role of mountains. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's definitely um, something that was important in one of the civil wars that I studied, which is Angola, um, where borders become incredibly important, but primarily in decade three of uh-huh. the conflict. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And it's a huge, huge part of the last decade of the war, um, but it's not such a big deal in the initial years. Um, And so I was, again, another finding I thought was really interesting. Um, But I do want to kind of turn away a little bit from sort of the implications for research, uh, though there are loads of them and they're very interesting. Um, This book also has some kind of obvious, but also some not so obvious um, implications for policy. So I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through what, you know, this better understanding, this more nuanced, or as you said, higher resolution understanding, um, what does this mean for policy? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I think that, um, yeah, the most, I agree with you, it's, it's sort of obvious, it's sort of not, is that States who you know wish to, and I and I think really most do want would want to end non-state armed groups that are going to challenge their authority. The states that want to end them early before they become quite violent need to know about them, and they need to have deep ties in the community to get information from communities where threats may be emerging, right? Or this could be known as the informational penetration. Of the state, but in this very particular way, it's not just about like the community being legible or countable to a state, but it's about the state, you know, having people in the community that trust the state enough um, to share information with it. 
And, you know, so this has implications for community policing types of findings. Um, and I think it has a lot of important implications for state inf- um, formation, you know, especially in Africa, where we see in Rwanda, Uganda, um, Ethiopia, you know, much of Ethiopia's recent history, well, not, not the most recent chapter. Um, even in Eritrea, we see former rebels that have taken control of the states uh, who understand this, right? In Uganda, current President Yari Museveni has been in power for 36 years. He himself is a f- former successful rebel who succeeded in taking over the state. And as a former rebel, he's aware of the importance of local ties. And, you know, in that state, they've put in place a um, system of village councils or really, I mean, a whole um, you know, complex system of what it, it, on paper at least is decentralized governments going down to the village level. But even at the very village level, there are representatives of the security apparatus whose role it is, is to share information up the chain if they detect important security threats um, emerging in the community. Right. And so the, the good news is that States like um, Uganda, as well as um, Rwanda, you know, have not had a lot of rebel groups form on their territory since, uh, as I mentioned, about 2006 in, in Uganda's case. Right, But then the dark side of this, of course, is how easy any of these tools can be, kind of, how easily they can be repurposed for sort of authoritarian ends, right, and to also monitor and perhaps stifle uh, opposition political threats. And so I think this points to not only the importance of domestic intelligence, but also of um, accountability and oversight of those intelligence institutions to ensure that they don't become uh, politicized. Um, you know, that I think is is probably the, the most basic uh, and clear policy implication mm. that, that comes out of the book. Well, and I thought that it was... it raised a lot of links for me with sort of counterinsurgency um, doctrine about kind of it's all about, I mean, hearts and minds is a headline term, but the kind of practical reasoning behind it is to get information, is for civilians to be willing to come forward with information. Um, and this is, again, you know, something that's often thought about kind of in the midst of the conflict or trying to end a conflict. Um, and so in a lot of ways, it's a very familiar policy suggestion, but deployed at a time that I think is not when it's usually deployed, um, which I think is kind of both in some ways makes it easier to think about putting into effect, but also is like stranger to comprehend because like, wait, but that's not how we're used to doing things. Um, So I thought that was interesting. And I think um, there is probably something to be looked at in terms of kind of these countries uh, that you've just named, uh, many of which are ruled by, as you said, former rebels, right? Is there perhaps a correlation between uh, countries that have figured out what these mechanisms are and can more effectively nip rebel groups in the bud for better or worse um, because they, you know, manage to avoid that themselves? Yeah, right. No, I, I, I think that's, uh, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think a lot of these countries, and there's some new exciting work on this that have formed out of rebellion, have actually been sort of relatively economically successful, relatively stable. Right. I mean, if you look, Eritrea is an example of 
clear example of becoming also highly repressive. Right? I think there's a lot of concern about um, democratic backsliding in these countries, you know, in, in East Central Africa, um, where you have victorious rebels in, in power. And that happened, you know, even arguably in Ethiopia under the, the victorious rebels there from the, ni- from the 80s and 90s, the, the mm-hmm. TPLF. Um, well, I do want to kind of think about this idea of the implications, right, for states, um, because I really appreciated that the book doesn't just focus on Uganda, doesn't just focus on countries similar to Uganda. Um, there is, There are a number of sections that kind of discuss other things beyond that, you know, how Uganda is representative of other countries or what can we take from it. Um, and I wanted to ask you in particular about kind of the implications for this argument and sort of the things we've been discussing. If we think about um, rebel group formation in states that, you know, for want of a better word, we might use the term stronger, that do have more, in the very least, police or informational capacity before conflict breaks out. Um, how might we think about these things that you're coming up with in those sorts of contexts? Sure, absolutely. Well, to return to something I said at the start of our conversation, <clears throat> you know, I, I talked about these in these weaker state contexts, right? Rebel groups start small because they can, right? Because the barriers to entry there are are low or there's not a lot of monitoring. You can, you can get off the ground with just a small number of guys with a small number of weapons who don't have a lot of material endowments, who don't even have perhaps a lot of organizational endowments, although that wouldn't hurt, which is to say they do not necessarily already have to have come together under the sort of organizational umbrella of a non, some form of nonviolent or even violent organization, former rebel group or so on. So the implication of that, the flip side, is that in stronger states, the barriers to entry are going to be much higher, and aspiring rebels are going to think much harder about starting, right? There'll be a selection process where the the would-be weaker groups just won't risk it, right? And therefore, we should expect rebel group formation to be more rare in stronger states, right? That's pretty uncontroversial. Um, but also we should expect them to have higher levels of endowments from the beginning, um, right? So you're not going to get started unless uh, you're much less likely to, to risk it. That is, unless you already have you know, access to a pretty substantial cache of weapons. Maybe you have access to a, you know, through a prior organization, through a group of people that trust each other. Um, maybe that have some military skills, you maybe have access to um, financing, um, right? And and so you're just not going to dare to start unless you have those higher levels of endowments on average, right? And also probably, you know, you're going to be ready to go or go big from the start in terms of your level of violence. Not, Not always, right? Of course, there are sort of urban terrorist groups and that be maybe something else, but groups that are really planning to challenge the territorial authority of a state are not going to go for it unless they're really quite strong. They may also only do it if they believe that, you know, have a strong belief that civilians in their area or a stronger belief that civilians will be more predisposed to support them. Right. And so, yeah, in stronger states, we should expect rebel group formation to be more rare, to become more violent, more quickly, more likely to, um, you know, need the implosion of an existing security force, either the implosion or, or perhaps the just fragmentation, splitting apart of, 
prior security forces or different security forces turning against one another. That is to say, state security forces. Um, right. For example, I think you see that in Syria at the start of the Syrian civil war. Right. You saw this more of what I think classic or what people typically coming from at least the U.S. expect when they think of how civil wars start. We have this groundswell of, of um, civilian protest and then combined with the fracturing of the military. So you have some really you know, true experts in organizing violence that are already somewhat pre-organized um, forming a lot of what becomes the rebellion uh, against the Assad regime. So um, that is, I think, the um, really key implication for um, rebel group formation in stronger states. Um, and I think I know a lot of uh, scholars, uh, Irish Malone and others, who are, who are starting to collect better data that will able to enable us to test that kind of claim um, on a broader set of cases than I was able to in, in the book. I, I, I explain some of these ideas and uh, demonstrate them through some examples. And I think the next wave of research will hopefully be testing those claims uh, even more broadly. Well, before I get to um, the next wave of research, uh, one more kind of, I guess, on this book, um, in the process of putting all this together, looking at the higher resolution data at the subnational level, um, and obviously talking to loads of people and skimming through goodness knows how many newspaper articles, um, was there anything in particular that sort of surprised you in the research or writing process? Sure. Let's see. I, a couple of things that surprised me. Um, you know, in retrospect, maybe they sh- they shouldn't have. But there was when you it was somewhat surprising me to sit down with former rebels and um, to see just how, in in a sense, relatable they were. Like this is you know, I am not someone uh, predisposed to violent action in any way. Um, uh, but these were people you know, who, not all of them, but by and large, you know, were really quite personable, charismatic, worldly even. Um, Several of them, you know, had even been to the U.S., one one educated in the U.S. And so even though I was someone arguably, you know, sort of predisposed to strategic accounts of why violence occurs, um, it did really struck me. And as you sit down with people to hear them articulate why to them this was, you know, given the um, hand that they had been dealt in life, why this felt like a, a you know, collecting a group of people to challenge a state violently um, felt like the best option for them for, for personal advancement and to improve um, the standing of their community. Um, and, and so th- those moments often um, felt a bit a bit surprising when I realized just how relatable some of their stories were. Um, And I also really just appreciated and and was always somewhat surprised about how, no matter how far I was, you know, from, from a capital city out in rural areas, um, when I'd introduce myself to villagers um, and, you know, would, would try to be kind of mindful of um, the, any, any, power dynamics that were there between them. And I tried to be extremely clear with the help of locals that they had no obligation to speak to me and that there was no direct benefit of them for speaking to me. And that my aim was, you know, going to be to 
help understand how insurgencies begin, begin and what the experience was like was that for them. And I was going to try to bring that to a, a, an American audience, to American university students to help educate Americans about what their experience was like, just how much they um, understood that and appreciated the value of that and how willing they were to sit down with me and um, share their experiences with me. That was, you know, surprising in the, in the best possible way. Yeah, lovely surprise. Um, Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, That really just leaves my final question. Um, You mentioned some kind of future research directions, uh, but as we all know, the all the things that could be done with a book, all the things that could be done next, does not necessarily mean that you, as the author, must do them all yourself. Um, That would be a exhausting and b like let other people into the fun, right? Um, so I don't want to presume what you're working on now or next, and maybe you could tell us a bit about it. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I think on, on Rebel Group Formation, I'm doing um, some, some you know, a, one paper on uh, king in a little more on what's going on with violence in the, in the very early phases, trying to expand some of that chapter of the book uh, in collaboration um, with a PhD student. I, I collaborate with Stephen Rangazis, who uh, knows a a lot about history. And so we're trying to understand using historical cases uh, even more about how people um, perceive early violence is that's one project. And another project I'm really excited about is um, on the topic of how networks in um, rural villages shape people's beliefs and understandings, um, trying to apply some of those ideas to how host communities in rural areas relate to refugees and whether and how um, good perceptions of other groups like refugees may spread um, through social networks. So I've been piloting some of that work actually um, back in rural Uganda with my uh, co-author Jennifer Larson from Vanderbilt and um, we're trying to do a mix of qualitative research and uh, field experiments that help us understand how, again, sort of perceptions and hopefully beliefs can be warmed towards other groups um, by harnessing some of the social interactions that happen on the village level. Cool. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. I'm well, excited about it. Yeah, that sounds fun. Uh, if any of those <laughs> or anything else become uh, book projects, you will have to come back and tell us all about them. <laughs> Love um, to. Thanks. But in the meantime, while you are off um, experimenting and doing all sorts of things, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which again is called um, How Insurgency Begins Rebel Group Formation in Uganda and Beyond from Cambridge University Press. Janet, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks so much for the conversation.